I love the ancient prophets. I think they are really good at using a few well-chosen words to paint a picture that contains so much meaning. And here the prophet Jeremiah drawing on a landscape that would have been very familiar to him and very familiar to those who he was first addressing uh, uses the, the classic kind of barren, uh, what do we call it? It's a, a desert landscape really where not much grows and we understand that not much grows. There's not much water, there's not much soil. It's hard for things to survive there. And he says, that's like the person who trusts in mankind. And similarly, in that landscape, every now and then you'll see a robust growing plant or tree and it's like they have their own aquifer. They have their own access to a deep, deep source of nourishment and nutrient. And despite the landscape, are doing really well. This is a person who trusts in the Lord, says Jeremiah. So I want to think about these two ideas um, for us this morning because whilst they're, they're, they're lovely images and we go, yeah, that's fantastic, what on earth does it mean? And it uh, probably means much more than we're going to say this morning, but let's have a go anyway. Human beings are amazing critters, are we not? We have this amazing capacity to learn and retain culture and pass information on and develop things and keep going. They, uh, scientists have recently identified mirror neurons in the brain, this idea that we are really wired for mimicking and copying one another. It's an extraordinary thing. And um, we've always known this socially. You can just see how it happens socially. But now they can even see the wiring in the brain is set up to do this. I love watching my girls grow up. They're both unique individuals and um, their temperaments are unique. The way they go about things are unique. Their DNA is unique. Um, what they're interested in is unique. And I can't help noticing how Joe and I have an influence on them, not deliberately. Uh, you might have heard me mention the name Rene Girard once or twice. And uh, I picked up a couple of these very simple introductory uh, books to Girard's thinking and I had them on my shelf and I came home one day and Wei's reading through it's done with stick figures and a few words and she's going Dad, this is what happens in the playground every day <laughs> I swell with pride at my daughter who's reading Rene Girard <laughs> but we, we watch and we copy and we pick things up both in terms of our skills and even in terms of our desires this is how we learn this is how we build and retain and transmit culture. All animals do this to some degree, but we do it better than any other animal in the history of animals. It is in our nature to look to one another for what we need. And does that mean we are somehow specially cursed? Like Jeremiah says, cursed is the one who looks to man for his strength and finds his strength in his flesh. What is the nature of this curse, I wonder? Well, the problem with a default propensity to look to others is that we have this tendency to form alliances and rivalries. Um, that's what the sociologists call tribalism. We're very tribal people and we begin to define ourselves according to those who we identify with and who we identify against. 
And so, you know, someone could be a conservative or a liberal. We might say, oh, that person's a Westie because they live on the other side of, I don't know where the line is. When I was living in Manly, anybody on the other side of Pittwater Road, I think, was a Westie. Um, so it's all relative, isn't it? You know, she's a feminist. He's a, a chauvinist. Uh, they're foreigners. It's ways of identifying with and against people. And uh, not only is there a, toward, a tendency toward alliances and rivalries, but when we look to each other uh, all the time about, to learn what's valuable and desirable, we have a tendency towards envy and jealousy as well. And this can be a problem. I mean, some people might argue that the healthy sense of competition is what makes human beings so amazing. And there's truth to that, but at what cost? And who pays that cost is the interesting thing. Um, most people are happy with the way things are if they're on the doing amazingly well side of the equation, but if you're on the side of the equation where you're paying the cost, if you're, you've been left behind, that's much more difficult. And the real problem is that this really isn't a sustainable framework for how to do life and understand the world and everything. Um, we're discovering that neither our sense of reality or our sense of humanity or our capacity to manage society can be successfully sustained over the longer term if we constantly produce winners and losers. Two potentially catastrophic dy dynamics emerge. We can suppress our capacity uh, for um, empathy and become less human because if you're seeing losers all the time and doing nothing about it, you have to switch off. And that dampens our empathy and it actually makes us less human. And that's a big problem. On the other side, when society or the world's losers suddenly realise there's actually nothing in this for them anymore, they are set free from the normal constraints that manage people groups. And so you get people deciding that it's a good idea to fly passenger jets into tall buildings in a city because they've got nothing to lose anymore and the whole thing can become radically unstable. So what's the blessed side look like? Trusting in something that's bigger than us. And it's bigger than me and it's bigger than you and me and it's bigger than us and it's bigger than all of humanity because it's not just the sum total of all humanity doing its best thinking on a good day. It's something beyond that. I mean, in a funny kind of way, our democracy is a quasi-formalised notion of mob rule. Whatever more than half the people want gets put upon everybody, right? That's not the voice of God. That's democracy, even though sometimes we get the two confused. The voice of God is something even beyond that. And there's examples of it all the way through Scripture. And the one I keep going back to because I think it's such a key moment in history is Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And because of the way our heads are fixed, all we can 
when we hear that we think, what a terrible thing for Abraham to do, but actually child sacrifice was just a done thing. The amazing thing was he heard the voice of God say, don't choose somebody else's son like most leaders of tribes would do. You wouldn't choose your own son. That's the heir to the leadership. You'd choose probably some widower, widow who's got a child or somebody who the people wouldn't get too upset about losing that child. That's what you'd do because you've got to manage the whole thing. Abraham hears the voice of God. God says, if you're going to sacrifice a child, sacrifice your own child. Now that's not common sense. That's not groupthink. That's, that's radical. That comes out of somewhere else. And then he goes off up the mountain and what does he do? He doesn't sacrifice the child. And we think, well, that's a good move. But, you know, that would have been political suicide. That was the mechanism that was used at the time to secure life, to make sure the threat that was impending wouldn't overwhelm them. And if Abraham came back and said, guess what, I didn't do the sacrifice, they would say, well, what kind of leader are you? Politically very dangerous, not common sense. There was no social wisdom in that. It was a voice from outside. And Abraham said, no, God told me, sacrifice an animal instead. And human sacrifice was outlawed from Israel and the tribes of Israel from that point on. Although we should note they didn't really obey that and there was lots of human sacrifice that did actually go on and you hear the prophets rail against it. So we are imitators, right? We're born that way, we socially evolve that way, we look around to learn what's important, but we always have a choice about who we're going to imitate. Who do you want to be like? The biblical tradition demonstrates a consistent listening for a voice that is beyond just the voices of the other people. Not simply the voices of outside people, but a voice from outside of all people. A voice beyond people's voices. And whether the community obeys it or not, the testimony of scripture is that that outside voice is true. So scripture shows times when the people obeyed it and there was prosperity and times when they didn't and there was disaster. And that assessment is continually made through scripture. When Jesus comes on the scene, he calls us to follow him because he comes as one from outside of humanity as a human. Now that's complicated and paradoxical and I don't expect you to fully understand it. God knows I don't. But by following him, he shows us a way of behaving with the other humans that is a way that is outside the normal way, according to his pattern. And so we can form alliances of care and concern. This alternate voice continues to call the people of God towards an alliance of not uh, insecurity and trying to find strength and um, defences and attacks and things like that, but an alliance of care where people are almost jealous to love one another more, if you can handle that paradox. A kind of rivalry in regard to serving one another. If you're going to have a rivalry, rivalry with someone, see if you can outserve them. See if you can outlove them, in a sense. 
Uh, the other night, Joe and I finally caught up on a movie that I've been wanting to watch for years. Probably all of you have seen it. Lars and the Real Girl. Anyone seen that movie? <laughs> it's pretty quirky. And I'm not going to ruin it because I'd love you to go and see it. It's, um, I won't give too much away. But basically the direction of the story is the main character is emotionally and socially uh, complex and kind of disabled in a way, emotionally and socially. And he could have easily become the object of ridicule in his small town and rejection. And it almost happens. But instead, the community rally around this fellow who, due to trauma in his early life, just doesn't cope with normal things that we would naturally go and do. And they facilitate, in a funny kind of way, a process in which he finds healing. It's quite odd little bit beyond realism because I just can't imagine a community being that gracious, to be honest. It was really quite something. And the really remarkable thing is, not only does the central character find healing, but the whole community finds a healing in that. In their exercise of grace, in their extending of their understanding, in their giving of themselves, there's a beautiful scene, uh, just as the story is coming to the climax. And uh, the central character is facing a critical moment. And uh, the older women of the town come over with, you know, hot pot dinner. And they, they sit him down in the lounge room and he's, he's a bit nervous. He says, is there something I should be doing right now? And they say, no, dear, you just eat. We came over to sit. That's what people do when tragedy strikes. They come over and sit. Do you feel a little better? It says so much to me. When a community cares for all, and most especially the most vulnerable, there is this exponential multiplication of well-being. It is sustaining and nurturing for everybody. Now, there's a bit at the end of this passage which kind of feels like it's a bit out of sync because Jeremiah then goes... The heart is desperately deceitful and sick and nobody can understand it. And Oh, really? <laughs> I thought we, we better just touch on that because most of us think of ourselves as good people, don't we? I'm a good person. Are you a good person? I know you. You're good people. We are good people most of the time, or at least good enough people most of the time. And indeed, to struggle with a perpetual sense of I'm not a good person or I'm not acceptable is a road to not being very healthy emotionally and socially. So we need to see ourselves as good enough people um, because otherwise we're in trouble. And that can lead to kind of excusing certain behaviour. The narrative we tell around our, our life and so forth usually paints us as good enough people. We need that for our psychosocial survival. And so there's an innate capacity for self-deception, if you get what I mean. Do you get what I mean? I'll describe it in a minute more fully. But God is not fooled. Uh, God can see through our little stories that we tell ourselves and uh, the clothes that we would put on to present in a particular way and God knows our heart more completely than we know ourselves. God says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, 
even to give each person according to their ways, according to the results of their deeds. And here is a clue for us. Jesus picks this up often in the Gospels. It's our fruits that we should be looking at. What does your life produce? And I don't want you to sit back and go, oh, I've never done anything really great. Because it's not about doing something really great. It's about, do you get alongside other people? Do you ease their burden maybe just a little bit? Do you make your contribution to the community, to the society? It's not about being great. It's being about fully human in a way that brings life to you and to others. The fruit of our actions tells us so much about our desires and intents and motivations and so forth. Sometimes when I attempt to discipline one of my daughters, fortunately she's not in the room at the moment, she's usually where she appears, um, sometimes that can end in a screaming match. You only see me as the mild-mannered pastor that uh, presents himself here with a collar, but I can do a good old screaming dad thing, as well as the next dad, And um, it makes sense, really, because on one side you've got a self-absorbed, immature person given to hysterical outbursts, and on the other side you've got a child. So, um, (laughs) And I realise sometimes in the midst of these screaming outbursts that uh, I'm not actually trying to discipline my child. I'm actually just trying to stop her from doing something that really annoys me and I'm already annoyed and I'm an annoyed person trying to stop another annoying person from being annoying in my presence. I just want to shut it down. And so you get these clash of wills and it's the fruit of that that shows what's really going on. I'm not disciplining. I'm saying shut up and go away please without the please. Yeah. So our, the fruit of what we do is very revealing and uh, it can teach us who we trust and what's going on there. This is not simplistic because I, I chose this last picture because uh, when, if you're in a tall building that's on fire and you need to jump out the window to save your life, who are you trusting? The people holding the thing or God? And uh, well, in most cases you don't know those people So you've got to trust God that they're trustworthy. (laughs) And that's the subtlety of this. It doesn't mean that we don't engage in a a world of mutual trust and so forth, but underneath that we've got to put our trust in God and not be naive or simplistic, but that enables us to see more realistically in every situation we're in. Because the way we've evolved socially predisposes us to trust mankind and not God, in a sense. To put our dependence on our flesh for strength. And there is a curse in trusting too much in our own strength or in the strength of other people. We easily become arrogant, jealous, fearful, forming alliances and rivalries as we set ourselves against one another and the fullness of life will pass us by. We never get down to those richest places of nourishment. But when we put our trust in the Lord, the roots of our trust go far, far deeper so that even in a seemingly barren place we can work with one another in a manner that brings about mutual life. 
that is not about protecting ourselves, but it's about how we might give ourselves to one another and for one another, for the good of everyone. But don't be deceived. The fruit of your efforts will tell you much more about what you really desire than the story you tell yourself about that. And it might be more than you're ready to see, so go gently. Let's pray. Lord, you are an amazing God. Your wisdom is deeper than we can fathom and your grace and your love for us sustains us. Help us to put our trust in you that we might engage fully in the world and give ourselves, even as Jesus showed us in his life, in the giving of himself to the glory of your name. Amen.